Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I had figured it out. Wow. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true stories of how science has affected people's lives. This week's story is from Charles Van Rees. The story was recorded in January 2014 at Oberon in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The theme of the evening was Charting New Territory. So it was about 10 in the morning. And by this time, the temperature had reached approximately 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And I was squatting miserably in a bare patch of sand in the middle of a scrub desert in central Florida on this blazing hot day. And I was sweating profusely. But it wasn't sort of the hot weather sweat you get when it's just hot and you're feeling gross. But it was that nasty, cold, clammy sweat you get when you're in really severe psychological distress and maybe a bit of physical pain. And in fact, this was the first time in my life that I can remember being in so much pain that I didn't actually have the guts to look and see what happened. And, you know, by this time I had worked for a while in field ecology, and I was becoming really familiar with the sort of ways that you get hurt working in the field. Things like getting stung by bees, bitten by snakes, you know, spraining your ankle, smashing fingers, breaking toes, barbed wire, broken glass, I could go on. And, you know, always in the past some sort of a morbid curiosity would drive me to just kind of check it out, you know, just to look and feel things out and see what was going on. And this was just not one of those times. I remember that the pain was so bad, I could hear it. It was like this pounding in my skull, like there must have been blood or something. I have no idea. My hands were shaking, and I was seeing spots. I felt like I was going to faint. But let's, let's rewind a couple months. Now, now, I had come to Central Florida initially to work on a, as an intern uh, in an ecological research project studying an endangered bird called the Florida scrub jay. And what's fascinating about these birds is in addition to being threatened, um, they have this really unique sort of social behavior called cooperative breeding. And what essentially goes on, and not to bore you with the details, but you have birds who stay on the territory of other birds and help them raise their young. They might not even be related to them. These are birds that are adults. They're capable of reproducing themselves, but they're foregoing the opportunity to do that in order to help these other birds. And that seems really weird, right? At first, that's kind of spitting in the face of all we know about evolutionary biology. But in fact, what's going on is, throughout the, the history of this, of this species, there was never enough of this scrub desert to go around. There was limited habitat. And so eventually, a couple dominant birds would 
have a territory and they'd breed on it. And other birds would come and basically pay rent and they'd stay there and help raise the kids. Sometimes they'd be the kids from the year before, kind of like you know, college students that graduated, couldn't find a job and stayed at home with their parents. Except these guys are actually useful, right? <laughs> so, and so they'd be, they'd be at home and they'd be helping out. And the whole idea is you wait there and you pay your rent and you're hoping eventually somebody, somebody in your neighborhood gets knocked off and then you can maybe step up to the plate and, and become the next breeder. And that's kind of the big, the big way this works. And the result is sort of this idyllic scrub jay suburban neighborhood where you have this very stable lifestyle. Things don't change a heck of a lot and everybody knows everybody, right? And any news in this kind of a neighborhood is big news. It doesn't turn over the way that a lot of bird populations do where you know, there's migration and people are switching mates all the time. It's totally promiscuous. This was a very monogamous system. Nobody's cheating on each other. Very stable. So this is kind of where, where I came in, and, and it was my job, along with several other interns, to buzz around the desert on ATV and kind of be the gossip column for this little bird suburb. And we would sort of keep tabs on everybody and keep track of all our birds and who was doing what, etc. And that was pretty easy, because uh, most of these birds had actually been, been banded, which meant they had unique color bands attached to their legs, kind of like little bracelets, and each one had a unique combination so we knew who was who without having to go and ask them, because they you know, wouldn't really tell us. So on this particular morning, I was out sort of on the outskirts of this, of this suburb in, in, in the area where no one really lived, and I was kind of surprised because I saw two birds up on a snag. I thought, that's funny, you know, what are they doing? And I figured it was the birds that lived nearby, which were a nice young couple. They didn't have any helpers yet. They'd just gotten started, you know, sort of yuppie. And uh, <laughs> I, I put my binoculars on them, and right as I did, one bird reached over and fed the other one a scrap of dead lizard. And all my bird nerd senses just started tingling. I got super excited, and I was like, oh, man. And this is what's called a courtship feeding, which is the equivalent of taking somebody out to a fancy dinner, except it's, you know, dead lizard, right? <laughs> and this basically meant these birds were about to get their hanky-panky on, and as Mr. Gossam called this, I need, I need to know exactly what they, who they were and what they were about to do. And so got, got them in my sights and got a look at the female first, and it was this, you know, charming young female from the territory next door that I knew about. So I thought, oh, wow, that's great. Maybe they're deciding to move. That's kind of interesting. And then I moved my binoculars over to the male, and he was kind of silhouetted by the sun, so I couldn't get a really good look at him, but the bands were on the wrong legs. So it wasn't him. And I'm like, really? She's cheating on this guy? I thought they had something going. You know, they bred last year. I just saw them together this morning. I couldn't believe it. And so this could be a really big discovery, right? And so I'm getting all excited because this is, you know, I'm still trying to get into grad school and this could be my real ticket. And suddenly my, my ticket to grad school just takes off across the desert. And I'm thinking, oh, no, 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 no. And I'm just picturing my boss yelling at me like, how could you miss something that big, right? And I'm, so I'm just totally freaking out. And before you know it, I'm actually just running across the desert after this bird um, with no idea kind of where I am or where I'm going. And if you've ever seen a scrub desert before in Florida, right? Everybody's, no, probably not. But basically it's, Imagine a desert, lots of sand, but in addition, you have this really nasty vegetation. There's a reason they call it scrub, and it's probably from about ankle height up to your shoulders, maybe even a little higher. And there are things like saw palmettos and thorny plants and grabby branches. And I'm basically just crashing through this stuff, and I'm stubbing my toes, and I'm trying to move in these huge hiking boots. My, my clothes are getting shredded. I'm getting sweat in my eyes and sand in my mouth, and I'm just just busting it after this bird. And, of course, he's not having much problem on account of the fact that he's a bird, so he's just... <laughs> flying on ahead of me, sort of drifting elegantly in the air while I'm swearing and screaming and bleeding and breaking things and probably destroying this ancient endangered habitat. And, uh, and, you know, I don't know how long this chase went on for, but pretty soon the focus was changing from me wanting to get this bird and this sort of noble scientific curiosity to something more like, I'm going to kill this guy once I get a hold of him. 
And, you know, the misery gets worse, and my legs are starting to hurt, and I'm getting all beat up. And then the worst of it happens. And I, I watch this bird as he swoops down behind a, a tall shrub and disappears. And from the past couple months of, of experience with these birds, I knew I probably had about 10 to 15 seconds before he was gone. That was it. Bye-bye grad school. You know, time to go get a job at Starbucks or whatever. And so I panic. And I sprint towards this shrub as fast as I can and vault myself over it like a high jumper. I mean, what else am I going to do, right? So I'm hovering in midair, and I start to think. And I start to think about my friends who study other things in ecology. They study stuff like plants, amphibians, insects, and they're always looking at the ground, and they're paying attention to the details. They're looking for tracks in the sand or a rock that something could be hiding under, maybe a, a particular inflorescence from some plant. But as an ornithologist, as someone who studies birds, I'm always looking up. I've got my eye in the sky. You know, birds are easy. They're just these big things that are colorful, and they're flying around doing all sorts of crazy stuff. It's easy to see. And so you miss these fine details. And that's what I did. And I landed in the largest prickly pear cactus that I've ever seen in my entire life. And you guessed it. This is where the pain comes in. Now, I mean, fortunately, I, I, I managed to get my legs beneath me before I landed in the cactus, so the pain was restricted to probably the zone between my Achilles heel and the seat of my pants. And, and I sort of, there must have been some spinal reflexes involved because I was out of the cactus before I remember being in it. It was sort of like if you've ever seen a cat fall into water, they're just out before they know it. And it was like that. The problem was the out was actually in to a nest of invasive fire ants. Um, <laughs> which had taken it upon themselves in sort of the most charitable and generous way to uh, put me out of my misery. Um, but they weren't as efficient about it as I wanted them to be, and they were climbing up my legs and stinging and biting at anything they could find, and it was more extra pain and, and not as much death as, as I was hoping for. <laughs> so I'm sort of in the process of absolutely panicking and probably about to faint or something, and I hear a sound behind me. And I pause amidst my anguish and turn around, and there's the mystery man. He's hovering on a branch, kind of bouncing up and down like he just landed. At arm's length, maybe eye level, just staring at me with his obnoxious, beady little eyes. No expression on his face, just kind of like, hey. And compelled by some singularly ornithological reflex, I forgot everything that was going on, pulled out a piece of paper, wrote down his band combination exactly, folded it up, and watched him just drift off across the desert again. And there he went. But I had my ticket, right? And so with, with that sort of to bolster me, I kind of eventually built up the guts to check it out, right? And so I, I looked down. And to my extreme displeasure, I found that I had not a bunch of cactus spines, but in fact half, a half a dozen cactus pads stuck to my body. So if you've ever seen a prickly pear cactus before, it's kind of like this little like a stack of these palm-to-hand-sized ugly green pads from which all these very large spines are, are protruding. And so I had the whole thing stuck in there. And, and what bothered me especially was, was not the fact that there were these very long spines sticking out away from me, but that on the other side of the pad, the, you know, the part that was facing me, I couldn't see the spines. And it wasn't like they weren't there. <laughs> it was that they were all the way in. And what makes this even worse is if you've ever seen a cactus pad, right? They don't all stick out in a nice little, like, it's not like a comb. They're all in these crazy, horrible, gnarly directions. And so they were all in these horrible directions in me. And, and so 
I built up some confidence. I just said, you know, I got to do something about that because these ants were, were progressing dangerously northward, and I did not need that to persist. So I, I took out my, my Leatherman tool and folded it to its pliers configuration, and I started to wedge it between the nearest cactus pad and my leg, and I learned a, a lot of things that day. And, and so probably the first one um, was that they heard a lot more coming out than they do going in. Um, a lot more. And I think maybe there are some like backward-facing barbs or something in these things because pulling them out is just, is just terrible. And I also realized that if you want to take a cactus pad out, so anybody when this happens, now you know, don't, don't try what I tried. Don't pull them out one, one by one because that's actually going to force the other ones deeper or twist them or something awful like that. I ended up having to take them out a centimeter at a time and kind of do my rounds and make sure that each one came out at the same pace. Otherwise, there would be some sort of an awful twisting effect. We don't need that. Um, the second thing I realized was that you need a tremendous amount of power to take a cactus needle out of your body. And I always thought it was sort of like Wile E. Coyote, and he kind of dances around and plucks a couple out and everything's fine, but I actually need to use both arms and like pull with my whole body to like budge these things a tiny bit. So this was a long, long process, way longer than I wanted it to be, and really it would have been easier if someone had come and shot me. Um, <laughs> but, but they didn't, and so I, I showed up for lunch really, really late. Um, and what was even worse was that I had nothing to show for it. So actually, despite you know the blood and the pain and whatever, there were just sort of a bunch of pink spots on my butt. And, and I wasn't A, about to show people my butt, and B, about to brag about my pink spots, so I couldn't really get anyone to believe my story. But what was tremendously rewarding about all this was when I actually went and decided to put this data into the database of this study. Now, I was talking to my, my boss slash advisor at the time, and he was telling me that this particular behavior, this, this sort of extra pair of copulation or mate switching or whatever it was, this was something that had only happened a handful of times since they started this study back in 1968. You know, it was, it was actually sort of a, a big deal, and that was phenomenal for me. And, and what really struck me was, you know, here's this huge legendary behavioral ecology study that all the bird nerds are like, whoa, right? And, and I'm making my contribution to it. One extra little grain of sand on that, on that pile. I'm concretely adding something to that study. And for me, as an aspiring ecologist, it was just so amazing and so inspiring as a scientist to see, like, yeah, I can do that. Just with that, you know, maybe I get bit in the ass in the process, but I can contribute something like that. And I tell you, I've done a lot of field work, you know, since then, all over the world. And I've never really stopped looking up. Thank you very much. That was Charles Van Rees. Charles is a conservation biologist and PhD student at Tufts University. His research in biology focuses on how ecological research can be used to integrate biodiversity conservation with economic development and create win-win situations for people and wildlife. He is an ardent believer in the need for public participation in wildlife conservation and strives to integrate communication, outreach, and good old-fashioned storytelling into his work. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org. We have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. Also, we depend on listeners like you for our support. If you're able, please consider donating at storycollider.org donate. And a huge thank you to all of you who already do. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Rose Evelith. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Oberon for hosting the show and to Spring. Come on, buddy. You can do it. You can do it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>